The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the extraordinary political marriage of Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon. In 1952, Ike's run at the presidency was a sure thing. But who he would pick as his running mate? Well, that was the question everyone had. After a lot of deliberation and consultation, he ended up picking a young, smart upstart from California to balance the ticket and get him ready for his own run at the White House. Two of the most famous political figures of the 20th century, POTUS 34 and POTUS 37. Their dynamic give-and-take relationship is next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brun. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us better understand the pre-presidency years of Richard Nixon, we've invited Irv Gelman to join us. He's written several really interesting books on this period, including two that we want to get into today. One is called The Contender, Richard Nixon, The Congress Years. And the second book is titled The President and the Apprentice, Eisenhower and Nixon. Irv, we appreciate you joining us for this episode of American POTUS. You're welcome. Irv, I've really enjoyed uh, both books so much. Could could you perhaps start today by telling us about Richard Nixon's life before politics? What people or events in that time most shaped the man we would later see on the national stage? First of all, he grew up in a semi-arid, semi-rural, heavily populated Quaker background. Uh, his parents were both Quakers. His mother was born into it, and his father uh, converted into it. Uh, He went to uh, semi-urban schools, his uh, elementary school. When it was convenient, he didn't wear shoes. Uh, He went to schools in Southern California when Southern California was not heavily populated and uh, graduated uh, third in his high school class, third in his... his, uh, uh, college. He went to Whittier College, and he w- graduated third in his law school class at, at Duke. He uh, then practiced law for a short period of time, uh, went to uh, Washington, D.C., and served in the uh, Office of Price Administration, especially rubber, and then went to the Southern Pacific, where he served as a, a supply officer uh, in a uh, battle zone. He came back. Uh, He still worked for the Navy, canceling contracts that the Navy had during World War II. Got a telegram from one of his uh, younger mentors, a man named Herbert Perry, who was also a Quaker and the manager of Bank of America, and asking him if he would be interested in interviewing uh, for a congressional run against a five-term incumbent. Why did they think he'd make a great candidate? Uh, they didn't know until they interviewed him, and after they interviewed him, they thought he would make a great candidate. Uh, he was a 
superb debater. He had won prizes debating in high school and college. Uh, he uh, handled himself very, very well. He had a melodious voice. He spoke well, and he was always very prepared. He always seemed very sure of himself. Is that a, a correct characterization, or, or 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 am I reading that incorrectly? In, in many ways, it was inflated. Uh, he was sure in some things and not in others. Uh, he gave the appearance when he appeared before people to be very assured and very competent. And usually he was very prepared and competent, but not all the time, especially when he was not well prepared. So he, he really burst onto the national scene, became well known through his leadership of the investigation of Alger Hiss. So it's an unfair request, I admit, but can you summarize that Alger Hiss case for our listeners and tell us how it made Nixon a contender for higher office and also put a target on him forever thereafter? Well, first of all, he became well-known before Alger Hiss. He became well-known for beating a, a popular incumbent Democrat by the name of Jerry Voorhees, and he beat him soundly. After the election, there were stories six years after the fact that Nixon had called Voorhees a communist and uh, uh, other negative things, uh, none of which have ever been proven, and to the best of my research, never happened. But Nixon starts uh, to really become defined as a uh, bellwether with Alger Hiss. And basically, the Alger Hiss is not very difficult to explain. Alger Hiss was a, for want of a better word, a blue blood. He graduated from Johns Hopkins University as an undergrad and then went to Harvard as a uh, for his law training, came back to, to Washington, D.C., worked in the federal government, ended up uh, working in the State Department and being uh, FDR's uh, secretary uh, at the Yalta Conference. And in 1948, the House of American Activities Committee, which Nixon was a member of, uh, called some rather dumpy-looking guy with bad teeth by the name of Whitaker Chambers, who was an editor for uh, Time magazine. And quite nonchalantly, Chambers said that one of his contacts was Alger Hiss, and it made front-page news everywhere. Uh, Hiss, uh, in his wisdom, said that Chambers was lying, appeared in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee, and uh, uh, disclaimed any knowledge of of uh, Chambers and any knowledge that he was a member uh, and or had spied for the Russians. Uh, that became a major bone of contention for years and years and years and years, and it wasn't until uh, three uh, people, uh, two scholars, and one Russian uh, who had access to Soviet military intelligence files, uh, found his name and how he worked for Soviet military intelligence. And it wasn't until the turn of the 20th, 21st century that basically uh, the argument over Alger Hiss, except in a few cases of diehards, uh, could see that Alger Hiss was a uh, uh, agent for the Soviets. 
but in the meantime, uh, Nixon was railed for being unfair and uh, going uh, after uh, Hiss unmercifully, and uh, the Eastern establishment, especially the uh, major uh, people from the Ivy Leagues, uh, just thought that this was inconceivable that Alger Hiss had done anything wrong, and this upstart from uh, your Belinda had beaten him up badly for no reason. I think Nixon showed at that, that point a great deal of courage because as he started those proceedings with Hiss, Hiss seemed very confident. As you said, the weight of opinion was definitely for Hiss. As it goes on, that, that case progressively breaks down for Hiss, though you're right, many people never accepted that until the 21st century. But at the end of that, Nixon had a lot of supporters and a lot of detractors. Is that is that right? Well, again, it's, it's all part of a a fable which becomes fact. The uh, opposition, the Democrats, the people that opposed uh, Nixon's frame of reference, political frame of reference, uh, made Nixon into something that he wasn't, a liar, uh, a fabricator, etc. Even when Alger Hiss goes to jail, the federal penitentiary, uh, there are still people that claimed that Richard Nixon had uh, skewered Alger Hiss for no reason. And the icing on top of the case, of course, was after Nixon loses the governorship of uh, California in 1962, there is a program called the obituary, the political obituary of Richard Nixon. And who do they put on as one of the main people to interview? Alger Hiss. Oh, my. Um, well, you know, another time that Nixon um, drew a lot of detractors was when he made the move from the House to the Senate. And in that move, he defeated the Democratic nominee, Congresswoman Helen Gahagan Douglas. And his detractors still to this day point to that campaign as of as evidence of his willingness to take the kind of the low road. You have a different pr- perspective in your books. Could you tell us how you view Nixon's actions during this campaign for the Senate and why you believe ultimately he was successful? There are many reasons. The first reason was is Helen Hagan Douglas was an awful candidate. Uh, the, 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 the first thing that Helen Hagan Douglas tries to pull in the 1950 election was that Nixon was not a sufficient anti-communist and pulls out a provision in one of the the bills that he voted against, uh, gets it wrong, but that didn't matter. The major claim that goes on to this day is that Nixon called Helga Hagen Douglas pink down to her underwear. And that's true. According to a uh, self-published book, uh, his assistant, uh, William Arnold says, uh, goes in to see Nixon in their hotel room and says that uh, Helen Gahagan Douglas has said awful things about him. And uh, to reply, Nixon says to uh, Arnold, she's pink right down to her underwear. The problem is that that has been taken out of context to say that Nixon called uh, Helen Gahagan Douglas pink in public. It never happened. I looked at every major California newspaper. It's never mentioned. But when she's running in the primary against her opponent, who was a Democrat, a man named Manchester Bodie, who owned a newspaper, 
his back page of one of the the his uh, newspapers while he's running against her is in bold highlighted print don't vote for the pink lady the claim that the democrats have is that nixon put out a pink sheet where he compared her voting record with a man named Vito Marcantonio, who was a socialist congressman from New York. The problem is that, yes, that was true. And it may have gone out to hundreds of thousands of people. What the Democrats don't include was the ad that regularly ran by Helen Hagan Douglas, don't vote for a liar, Richard Nixon and then compares him to such luminaries as Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, and Benito Mussolini. Now, Ah. that somehow doesn't ring as awful as a circular that's put out, and somehow I don't understand the nature of how one is awful and the other one is totally forgotten. So uh, with Nixon not making that the, the focus of his campaign, what were the issues he ran on for the Senate? Well, basically, he ran on the issues of who he was, that he was helped uh, to expose uh, Hiss. He ran on uh, that he was a heavily person involved in anti-communism and stopping anti-communism. He ran on basically a physically conservative uh, platform. And Uh, The nature of how he won was not only those particular items. Remember, the Democrats in 1950 had about a million voter registration superiority than Republicans. But by 1950, when Helen Hagan Douglas runs, she abandons the center and the conservative section of the Democratic Party and appeals to what then was a relatively far left. And again, to show you how absolutely ridiculous things have gotten is two uh, academics with endowed chairs at Harvard, one Jill Lepore and one Frederick Logoval, have recently written last year books on partially uh, on the, the 60 election and uh, Logoval on John Kennedy's rise to 1956. And in it, Logoval calls Nixon in 1950 a sexist. I don't even think the term was used in 1950, but assuming it was, uh, and and Nixon was a a sexist, if you wish to to go that far, I don't know why at the same time Logoval did call uh, Jack Kennedy uh, a serial adulterer. Uh, That seems fair to me. But again, in the Jill Lepore book, she says that Nixon was not only a sexist and not only said that Helen Gahagan Douglas was picked down to her underwear, but that he and Joe McCarthy, when they served on the House on american Activities Committee together, did this awful thing. Uh, and if you didn't pick up the the stupidity of that, the fact is that Joe McCarthy never served in the House. He couldn't serve with Nixon on the House on American Activities Committee. And Joe Lepore thanks her two fact-checkers. Maybe she should have had a third. Interesting, interesting. So 
he's in the Senate, and in 1952, still a relatively young man, Senator Nixon becomes the vice presidential nominee alongside Dwight Eisenhower. How, how did that happen, and did he have any connection with Ike before that convention? Uh, he met him once, uh, saw him several other times, but he only had, uh, as far as a personal interview, he met him in, in Paris while Ike was serving, and uh, they, they, they got along well. Uh, Ike appreciated Nixon's role in uh, exposing Alger Hess. But as far as uh, the president knowing uh, Nixon well, uh, that was not the case. And how Nixon was chosen uh, to serve uh, as the vice presidential candidate was basically a smoke-filled room with uh, the governor of New York, Thomas Dewey, the Republican governor, and uh, felt that uh, Nixon would be a good balance, uh, an elder man with a younger man, uh, a Easterner with a Westerner, uh, and people that looked upon Nixon as a uh, asset. If you're enjoying Irv Gelman's take on the young Richard Nixon, we encourage you to check out all of his terrific books by visiting the guest resource section of AmericanPotus.com. And while you're there, send us a note and let us know of any questions or comments on this episode that you might have. Thanks for listening to American POTUS. So let's talk about the fund crisis. Uh, can you explain to our listeners what that was and how did it continue to factor into Nixon's image with his supporters and detractors long after that fund crisis had been resolved? First of all, the fund crisis was a manufactured issue. Nixon had a fund that was set up by his supporters to handle certain items, uh, birthday cards, Christmas cards, office expenses, various things uh, uh, like that. I think that the total fund ended up being somewhere around $18,250. And the claim was that during the campaign, uh, someone uh, leaked that Nixon had a fund. When it came out, it came out as an article in the New York Post saying, secret man's fund and accused Nixon of using this money for his house expenses, uh, trips, all kinds of stuff, none of which ever happened. So Nixon was put in a position where uh, Eisenhower was supposed to be as clean as his driven snow, and how could you run with somebody that had a secret fund? And so Nixon had to defend himself that the fund one, was not secret, which it was not. And two, he didn't use a, a penny of that fund for anything private. When uh, Price Waterhouse, the accountant company, uh, ran the numbers, they absolved Nixon of any problem. And a law firm also investigated, a, a major law firm in Southern California, and they absolved him of any problems. Uh, he went on... Uh, television. It was probably the the most watched television speech, a political speech, and it was called uh, the checker speech. 
Uh, Nixon called it the fun speech. But what it boiled down to was Nixon defending himself, laying bare all of his expenses. And uh, afterwards, uh, somewhere around three million favorable pieces of correspondence went in and uh, very few negative uh, correspondence. And Adlai Stevenson, who was running against Eisenhower, was asked, what is your comment? And his answer was nothing. And the reason for that was very simple. Stevenson had a private fund (laughs) that he used for his own personal expenses. And yet it was never investigated. And the upshot was, to this day, the checker speech by most writers, the word they love to use is maudlin. It was really soapy, crying, etc., and it was not worth anything. None of them mention that three million people thought it was a great speech. Eisenhower, after listening to it, goes down to the Cleveland Forum and says, I've just heard Nixon. He was wonderful. He's going to stay on the ticket. The problem is, there is one oral history that claims, uh, by the way, the, the man that claimed this was nowhere near, but he claims that Eisenhower listened to the speech when at a certain point in the speech, Nixon said something that, that Eisenhower didn't like. He stabbed his pencil into a piece of paper and ripped it. There was only one problem with that. I found Eisenhower's notes in the Nixon papers. He had given them as a present to the manager of the Carlton Hotel where he was staying. And again, another surprise for you, there was no stab mark and no rip. You've certainly done your research. Now, uh, uh, just to remind our, our listeners, it was often called the checker speech because one thing he ever see was the dog, right? Named Checkers, and he said, we're not going to give the dog we're back. We're not going to give the dog back. And, and yeah. that was Baldwin <laughs> right. and that disgusting and, and all, all, all of them. And again, it, it fits into the later narrative where he was awful with uh, Voorhees. He was awful with Hiss. He was awful with Helen Cahagan Douglas. He was a man that had a, a private slush fund. How how worse could you get? And Irv, Irv, another place where you you challenge kind of the standard depiction of Nixon is how his relationship with Eisenhower during the the the, uh, the Ike administration. Often you hear that they were not close. You believe that was not the case. How did they relate to one another on a personal level during the Eisenhower administration? Uh, again, uh, Eisenhower was a particular kind of of general. Uh, he had a few close friends. They were basically uh, social buddies, not political buddies. Uh, he treated Nixon in many ways uh, like a a, uh, a relative, if not a son. Got along very well with uh, the children, Julia and Tricia, and got a very got along very well with Pat. Uh, and again, to show you how absurd uh, this has gotten, it's a. Uh, a journalist by the name of Jeffrey Frank wrote a book called Ike and Dick. And he, his subtitle is The Story of a Strange Political Marriage. It's absurd. There wasn't anything strange about the relationship between Richard Nixon and, and uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower. 
they worked very well together. Again, not to be brought up in, in this conversation, but uh, Frank claims that uh, Eisenhower really was lukewarm to having Nixon win the uh, presidential election of 1960. And again, the problem with that is, how in the world would Dwight Eisenhower want to see John Kennedy, who had basically no major legislative record at all, who he barely even could recognize, he would want a Democrat to win, and not Nixon, to win and continue his legacy. It's, it's beyond, I, I can't even fathom where this stuff comes from. I know uh, during the Eisenhower administration, both the president and vice president had to take on the growing challenge of Senator Joe McCarthy. Can you discuss how they addressed that issue? Uh, yes. The, the, the nature of, of Joe McCarthy was one. He had all kinds of problems, including his alcoholism. But he, he was not a, 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 a serious politician in the sense of legislative activity. He, in many ways, spoke from uh, the hip, uh, not uh, being able to support his, th- uh, his arguments, but he was the chair of one of the Senate committees that investigated uh, communist activity. And he started to make his claim to fame when he gave a speech in West Virginia claiming he knew there were X amount of uh, commies in the State Department. Uh, his real uh, uh, rise and, and by the way, he never slipped in his report below a third, according to the Gallup polls. But he, his big thing was the Army McCarthy hearings, where he ends up uh, uh, looking like a, a jester and looks worse and worse and worse. And undercover, Eisenhower was trying to make him uh, uh look as a uh, uh, incompetent, did, and Nixon at first becomes a uh, mediator between McCarthy and the president, and it doesn't work. Nixon gets on board, and as such, McCarthy is is uh, ultimately censured as uh, uh, by the, the uh, uh, Senate. The again, it's interesting to note that everybody that writes about the Kennedys downplays the relationship between uh, John Kennedy, uh, Joseph, his father, and and Robert Kennedy, and the daughters with Joe McCarthy. The fact is that John Kennedy didn't like Helen Cahagan Douglas. And hands Nixon a thousand dollars from his father to use in his campaign as f- part of his fundraising against her, and yet for somehow Nixon and McCarthy are commingled, and Jack Kennedy is really kind of given a pass, as well as his father, as far as the deep relationship. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, by the way actually flies to Appleton, Wisconsin in 1957 to attend the funeral. I, I, I did not realize that. So, so uh, Irv, again, a, a place where you, you take on uh, other others who have written about this. During the Eisenhower administration, many will say that Ike 
uh, didn't move quickly enough on civil rights, but you contend a lot was accomplished during his eight years as president. Could you review those accomplishments in civil rights and what role Nixon may have played in them? It, it, it really is, again, a, a, a miswriting of history. Uh, Eisenhower comes in, appoints Nixon, uh, the chair of the President's Committee on Government Contract, which was a euphemism for getting uh, African Americans more jobs and, and, and better paying jobs. He desegregates the Capitol. Uh, it's one of Eisenhower's first moves. He hires uh, E. Frederick Morrow as a member of the senior staff for the White House. He continually promotes civil rights legislation, which ultimately passes uh, in September of 1957. It's the first civil rights legislation that passes since Reconstruction. He then passes another Civil Rights Act in 1960. They are together, maybe not what happens in the 1960s, because there's not enough ability in the Senate, for example, with the Southern senators, to pass significant legislation. But what he does is he creates in the Department of Justice the Civil Rights Division. And in addition to that, he begins the Civil Rights Commission, which examines segregation, etc., across the United States. Nixon is Eisenhower's public front man in meeting with prominent blacks uh, as the chair of the President's Committee. In addition to that, he becomes friendly with e. Frederick Morrow. He becomes friendly with Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, in 1960, his major black supporter is Jackie Robinson, who, by the way, finds the Kennedys abhorrent. Interesting, huh? So uh, Ike, in addition to the domestic front, Ike sent Nixon on several major international tours to Asia, Africa, the Americas. How did those trips reflect or advance Nixon's role within the administration? Uh, Eisenhower is using Nixon in many ways to promote his own agenda. His first trip, for example, is a long, long trip uh, from uh, uh, the West Coast uh, to Asia, Japan, uh, Hong Kong, uh, India, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, uh, to give uh, Eisenhower updates on what these places look like. Nixon is a, a great reporter as far as conditions goes in, in various places. In 1956, after the Hungarian Revolution uh, revolt, uh, Nixon goes to Austria and sees what's going on and how the Russians have put down the Hungarian revolt and comes back to the United States. And his trip is used to advertise the plight of the Hungarians and pass legislation that allows more Hungarian immigrants to come into the United States. The same thing is true when Ike sends Nixon to England for a visit there. And he sends Nixon to the Soviet Union, where he meets with uh, uh, Khrushchev uh, at the kitchen debates. And the idea, again, is for Eisenhower to learn 
from Nixon, his firsthand experiences with various leaders, especially Khrushchev, because Khrushchev comes back to the United States to meet with Eisenhower. So these are not only observations for Nixon, but they give Nixon the fundamental stuff which makes him a major player in foreign policy. Every good POTUS aims for a positive approval rating, and so do we. Please rate and review the podcast on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate all the kind words from our listeners and those that participate in the show. And if you want to know more about today's guest and his terrific books on Ike and Nixon, more information is easy to find on AmericanPOTUS.com. So we know as the administration goes on in 1955, Eisenhower has a heart attack in 57, he suffered a stroke. How did Nixon approach his role as vice president during those difficult times? And what kind of grades did he get for his actions uh, during those times? When Nixon is put in the position of carrying on for Eisenhower after he gets a, a far more serious heart attack than than scholars and and the public was led to believe. Nixon, to demonstrate uh, his his position as vice president, never sits in the president's chair. It's always empty. Nixon sits across from an empty chair, uh, trying to give the impression that everything is stable, that Eisenhower will return uh, to office, and that uh, he is basically a sort of a caretaker while the president is recuperating. In 1957, he he receives a stroke, but the stroke is is relatively minor, and Eisenhower really never uh, uh, loses control. But again, in, in addition to the stroke and the heart attack, he also goes through another operation, which is very serious, also, and. Uh, there is is Nixon again uh, mining the store. It, he he's serving more as a not a, a a replacement for, but a caretaker for uh, Eisenhower coming back to power. In most cases, he receives very very good marks for how he uh, behaves during these crises. You know, a lot's been made as Eisenhower prepared to run for a second term. He uh, talked to Nixon about taking a cabinet position rather than continuing as vice president. Much has been made of that. Can you give us your perspective on why Ike made that suggestion and how Nixon viewed it and countered it? First of all, Ike wasn't trying to damage Nixon's political career. He was trying to help it. He had no intention, according to his own records, of hurting Nixon's possibilities of moving up to the presidency. What he was doing was saying that Nixon, as many senators who have no managerial experience, he wanted Nixon uh, to take over a major cabinet position where he would be able to run a large organization. Nixon did not realize the extent of where Eisenhower uh, was perspective and thought that this would look be looked upon as the motion. And Eisenhower said, Dick, chart your own course, make your own decision. And after Eisenhower said that, Nixon said, 
I want to remain on the ticket with you as vice president. And that's exactly what happened. So you, you mentioned earlier the, the uh, famous kitchen debate. Let's, let's dive into that a bit more. In 1959, Nixon goes to the Soviet Union. He has that debate with Soviet Premier Khrushchev. How did that trip come about, and how was Nixon's performance regarded here and abroad? Well, Nixon received all kinds of kudos except from uh, Khrushchev, and that probably helped him. But the, the nature of how it came about was that the United States had an exhibition in uh, the Soviet Union in the summer of 1959, and Nixon was invited uh, to go to help open the exhibit. And that is where uh, he met Khrushchev. But the idea behind it, in addition to that, was there were a number of military people that went along uh, with Nixon to evaluate places that the CIA had never been. And he goes to the interior of uh, the Soviet Union, uh, and uh, the Air Force and the CIA get a great deal of information from it. How the actual kitchen debate took place It wasn't planned or anything. They just happened to be standing at a given place at a given time, and they had this uh, argument over capitalism versus communism. And the winner or the loser, according to the American polls, was that uh, Nixon did very, very well. According to anybody you talk to in the Soviet Union, uh, Khrushchev did very, very well. Uh, uh, surprise! Uh, I'm sure that that surprises right. you. But the, 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 right. yeah, but the nature of uh, Nixon's visit also paved the way for uh, Khrushchev's visit to the United States. Okay, Irv, I have a few short questions about the personal side of Richard Nixon. Here we go. Nixon seemed like a very serious guy. What did he do to relax? He was a very serious guy. Uh, He listened to classical music. He was trained in the piano and trained in the violin and enjoyed classical music, enjoyed uh, Broadway things. Uh, He relaxed by watching. He loved to watch sports, especially football and baseball. Uh, He took vacations uh, with his family, but many of those were, were, were interrupted. As far as someone who, who really relaxed for a long time, uh, Nixon was not one of those things. He was incredibly focused. Uh, his, his life was uh, politics. And uh, as many people that are biopic uh, and, and very, very bright, if not brilliant, they're different from me and you. Uh, they, they, they function on a far different uh, plane. Uh, I, I don't know if that's good or if that's bad, but I think that's the reality with Richard Nixon. Ike is obviously the master in this relationship. Richard is the apprentice. So let me uh, read off some things and you give me the grade that Ike would give his apprentice Richard. What grade would Ike give Richard on debate? Again, we're not talking about the great debates of 1960, are we? No, no. He, 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 up until that time, he thought that Nixon spoke well. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing if you wanted Ike to give him a debate, Ike would kind of give him like a B plus. Okay. Because Ike was, was, was very careful 
when he watched Nixon and when he watched Checkers, for example, he thought that, that Nixon got an A. But other times, uh, he, were, he was a, a, a very careful dissector of how people behaved. What Ike is not given great deal of credit for is really, you know, one, how, how bright he was, uh, and two, how well he wrote. Okay, what grade would Ike give Richard on playing well with others? I don't think he would give Nixon a a a a, a very good score on that. Maybe a C. <laughs> uh, okay. uh, he often felt that that Nixon could have handled people better, and I think he was probably right for the wrong reasons. I, I don't think what Eisenhower understood because of his nature. And by that, I mean, nobody ever really came after Eisenhower. You, you, you don't come after the most popular, famous person in the world. So by definition, uh, because of the skewing of history, they have made Nixon into far worse character than he was. And Eisenhower would hear those caricatures from other people. And rather than understanding that these were meant overwhelmingly to damage Nixon and by damaging Nixon, damaging Eisenhower, the, the, the greatest and most disgusting thing that comes to mind was the speech that Adlai Stevenson gives right before the election of 1956 where he says, you know, Eisenhower is sick. And by all possible analysis, by the end of the Eisenhower term, Eisenhower will be dead and Nixon will be your president. That was bizarre. Man. Politics, Polit even back then. Not, not, even, nothing to well, no, I hate to put it like this, but... If you're expecting any great change, you're not going to get it. Yeah. All right. How about a grade on courage? What grade would I give Richard on courage? I think he would give him a high grade on courage. I think he would give him, you know, uh, uh, an A on courage, especially uh, after his visit to uh, South America when he is uh, going up against the agitators who are throwing stuff at him and, and, uh, uh, threatening his very existence. And even uh, Nixon believed that he was in danger uh, in South America, especially uh, in Venezuela, of, of uh, uh, possibly dying. And finally, or fin final grade here, and I think I'm, I'm predicting I know this one, but uh, loyalty. What grade would I give Richard on loyalty? Oh, that that would be that would that would be undoubtedly an A. And again, one of Nixon's chief weaknesses was exactly that. In in Eisenhower's case, you could be loyal, but you were expendable. Sherman Adams, initially when he is accused of influence peddling, etc., uh, Eisenhower holds on to him. But uh, at at some point, Eisenhower says. You got to go. And Eisenhower felt that Sherman Adams was as pure as the driven snow. But in Nixon's case, Nixon, uh, and again, we're getting far beyond uh, his early years, maintains the image of absolute loyalty. 
throughout his presidency, much to his detriment. Irv, really have enjoyed this conversation. What is next for you, and where can our listeners learn more about your work? Well, I have a uh, a new book coming out, and it looks like in January, called The Campaign of the Century, uh, Kennedy, Nixon, and the Election of 1960. And ah. the shocking thing about it is, as as many surprises that you, you found in The Contender and The President and The Apprentice, the election of 1960 is even worse. No, no, no one has done a scholarly treatment of issues like fraud in the campaign of 1960 in Chicago with Mayor Daley and in Texas with Linda Johnson. No one has done archival research on the great debates. No one has done archival research on Kennedy's Catholicism. No one has done archival research on uh, the move from the election to the inauguration of Jack Kennedy. I was, I didn't think that I had a book uh, on the election of 1960. I thought it had been done. But it's based on the Kennedy archives. It's based on Kennedy interviews. It's based on uh, uh, Kennedy authors. I understand, you know, Theodore Sorensen writing uh, glowing reports of his boss. I understand Arthur Schlesinger writing glowing uh, things, Pierre Salinger, etc. They they have a stake in the race. Uh, if 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 Kennedy didn't do well, they didn't do well. But the people that claim to be objective, if that's a, or fair, or whatever the word is, no one used the Eisenhower papers. No one used the Nixon papers. No one used the FBI. No one used the Linda Johnson papers. You know, most of these these Kennedy authors uh, use the Kennedy Library. The Massachusetts Historical Society, I think, is 20 minutes away. Henry Cabot Lodge Jr.'s papers are there. I guess it was too difficult to find their way to get there. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I was, I, I was, I was shocked to see how literally a vacuum had been created over 60 years, and. I I really don't like to draw the conclusion, but I think that the people that wrote about the 60th election were satisfied with the overall theme. And the overall theme was based on Theodore White, the election, the presidential, the making of the president in 1960. And when Theodore White wrote his own memoirs, he said, well, it really wasn't what you think it was. I never intended to have it anything other than Kennedy being the hero and Nixon being the villain. So for 60 years, rather than these two guys who were as complex as complex could be, have been trivialized into something that they weren't. Well, this sounds fascinating. When, when do you plan on it coming out? Oh, it, it, it's already listed on Amazon. People, believe it or not, are already starting to buy it. It comes out in January. 
Well, we, we will link to it on the American POTUS website for sure. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, and again, thank you for the time. Since you could edit this thing, I talked to yes. Evan Thomas, and he was very pleased with how you treated him. And I'm very pleased with how you treated me. No, oh, very good. I hope I, I, I did disappoint you. Well, well, we <laughs> certainly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. We look forward to talking. When the new book comes out, we'd love to talk with you again. Well, I appreciate that. You guys, you know, stay safe and be careful. Okay, you too, Earth. Thank you. Okay, have a good day. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We would like to thank author Irv Gelman for joining us for this episode on Eisenhower and Nixon. More information on his books, along with all our other terrific experts, can be found on AmericanPotus.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions that you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Richard Nixon. Quote, A man is not finished when he's defeated. He's finished when he quits. <laughs>